you can acquire consent and the sex can be terrible. Consent isn't a guarantee of anything. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. One of the key principles embedded in many models of sexual consent is that consent must be specific. That is, you need to know exactly what it is that you're saying yes to. This also means that you need to know in advance exactly what it is that you want. However, we often don't know what it is that we want when it comes to sex, which makes navigating this issue rather tricky for everyone, but especially for women. Women are told to confidently claim their desires in the name of empowerment, which may sound good in theory, but desire is often slow to emerge in women, and women are at significantly heightened risk of sexual violence. Consenting to that which is unknown can be highly erotic, but it can also be really risky especially when a partner's ideas about what you might want turn out to be wrong. Navigating this sexual landscape is very complex, so let's talk about it. Some of the topics we're going to discuss today include why consent itself isn't enough to guarantee good sex, what it really means to have good sex, and why a lot of the advice we receive on good sex isn't very good. I am joined by Catherine Angel, author of the internationally acclaimed book, Tomorrow, sex will be good again. Her previous books include Daddy Issues and Unmastered, a book on desire most difficult to tell. She is a senior lecturer in the English department and a fellow of the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences at Queen Mary University of London. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. New year, new sex life. Give yourself a boost in the bedroom this year with Beducated. Their online courses can help you to increase your sexual knowledge and skills. They can also help you to cultivate more satisfying relationships. They have courses for everything, including how to enhance intimacy, awaken pleasure, explore new sexual horizons, and connect on a new level. The content is amazing, and there's a lot to learn from these courses. Try them all today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Miller, as the coupon code. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy. Hi, Catherine, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So as I understand it, your academic background is in history and the philosophy of science, and your books and writings have focused a lot on human sexuality and sexual desire. So as a starting point, can you tell us briefly where your interest in writing about sexuality came from? What led this to be one of the focal points for your writing? I often get asked that question, and um, in a way I don't know quite how to reply <laughs> because I, I feel like I've always been quite fascinated by sex and sexuality and particularly as it relates to feminism. When I started my PhD, it was actually more of a medical history PhD. It was more about the history of different models of causation and explanation in medicine and in psychiatry. And then I sort of started working on stuff to do with Viagra and the push to classify female sexual dysfunctions in relation to erectile dysfunction and, you know, stuff that was happening, changes in the DSM. And it was really, I suppose, then that I started writing kind of concertedly about the relationship between sexuality and psychiatry and psychoanalysis and these different fields. But in a way, I think that I've always been really interested in the different cultural ways we conceptualize the fact of human sexuality and, and the way we live with these really different models that are sort of contending for, you know, explanatory power when it comes to sexuality. And some of those models are really located in the body and in scientific discourses and in laboratories. Um, and others, you know, are located much more in the psychological realm and then the philosophical realm in a way. And I've always been really interested in what those different models kind of give us and what they lack and what they might promise to us. But I think that interest in, in the sort of epistemologies of sexuality has always also been kind of very alive for me in terms of thinking in a, in a granular way about what sexual life can be like. And of course, you know, I can only sort of speak from my own experience, but thinking about, you know, the shame and the kind of punitiveness that is so often meted out to women in the realm of sexuality and what that means for women and young girls on a daily basis, trying to kind of be open to pleasure and exploration and want, want that side of their lives to be alive, but knowing that there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of punishing discourse around that too. So I feel like in the different things I've written, it's been a kind of confluence of those two preoccupations that's always been what I seem to return to all the time. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about how, you know, the field of sexuality is incredibly interdisciplinary. And when I go to conferences in this field, you have physicians, philosophers, psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists. It's people from all these different backgrounds, which I think speaks to the fact that you can analyze sex from so many different angles. And my view, my philosophy on sex has always been that you can't just look at any one of those particular disciplines or sets of theories to try and gain an understanding of human sexuality because it's only a piece of the puzzle and they all have limitations. And so I appreciate the critical look at, you know, all of these different areas and how they intersect and what can we learn from these different disciplines. But let's talk a bit about your latest book titled Tomorrow, Sex Will Be Good Again. Can you please tell us a little bit about the inspiration for that title and what you're getting at with it? 
Yeah, it was funny. It actually came quite late in the process of writing it, the title. It was in the book because I quoted the line, which is from Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality, the first volume. You know, I was using that quote in the text. And then quite late on in the day, someone suggested to me, oh, maybe that should be the title. And I thought, that's perfect. That's such a good title. <laughs> what I find really kind of reverberating about it as a phrase is that it can be read very hopefully. You know, there's this promise that sex will get better, you know, that sex will improve. There's also the implication that it is falling short in some way. You know, it will be good again because there is something that's wrong with it now. And, you know, Michel Foucault is using it in his writing in a really wry and sort of sardonic way. And, and the context of the quote is that he's um, he's kind of satirizing the ethos or the mood of writing about sex that was happening in, you know, in the 60s and 70s, that was looking to all these sort of emancipatory discourses, some of which, you know, were psychoanalytic, some of them were Marxist, some of them were scientific, and saying, you know, we here we are, we've got the resources that is going to make sex good and that's going to allow us to get rid of the shame and the opprobrium that has, you know, really dominated sexuality since especially the Victorian period. But Michel Foucault is sort of, you know, he doesn't agree with that. In a way, that position is kind of the target of his critique in this book. And in that book, there's so much playful language around sex. And I think he captures something about, you know, the ambivalence that we carry with us so much around sex, which is huge amounts of hope, like huge investment in sex, you know, the, the way that we pour so much into it and expect it to make us so happy and feel so devastated when it doesn't. And the way we, in a sense, I think, end up kind of injuring ourselves more because we place too much hope in it. And so I suppose it really spoke to me as a title because I felt like it captured something for me of my own ambivalence, which is, you know, a feeling that we have made really great strides when it comes to sexuality, when it comes particularly in certain areas of the world or, you know, certain contexts, strides in terms of a lessening of the stigma and, you know, sort of shaming of women's sexuality, of queer sexuality. But obviously those gains are so tenuous. They're so fragile, as we know, especially in the, you know, I mean, in the history of just the last year in the US in particular, it's very kind of painful developments. And so, you know, on the one hand, I sometimes feel very optimistic about how we talk about sexuality now and are so much more imaginative than maybe we were a few decades ago and so much more compassionate. But I also think the temptation to keep sex in its place, if you like, and to really to give in to that urge to sort of contain it and to be very anxious about it is so powerful. And I felt it very strongly in the wake of Me Too and how much in response to this egregious violence that we were kind of hearing so much about, there was a, re, um, a reaffirmation of uh, discourse about consent that I think on the one hand was really necessary. You know, it's obviously really vital that people keep learning and teaching about consent. But I felt it was such a fragile moment because while the importance of consent was being reiterated, it felt to me like we were in danger of not kind of thinking clearly enough about what power means in the sexual realm and how we might actually help 
women and men, everyone, to have sex that is exciting and that isn't harmful. So um, that was a long answer to, <laughs> to your question about the title. Well, I love everything that you said, and I love a good title that can be read multiple ways and has this deeper meaning and, and story behind it. So I appreciate you sharing that and also totally agree with the sentiment about people putting so much expectation into sex and having you know, these really high hopes for what it should be every time and, you know, how that can impact our sex life in sometimes very negative ways, which we'll dive into a little bit later. But there's a lot to unpack in your book because it deals with the complexities of several really big issues, including consent, which you just mentioned, desire, vulnerability, power dynamics, and sexual violence. So let's start with consent. We've heard a lot about consent in recent years. You know, as you mentioned, in the wake of Me Too, we've talked increasingly about this. And a lot of different models of consent have been proposed. But we often hear about how consent needs to be very clear, very enthusiastic, while also being very specific. So there's this presumption that when you say yes to something, that you're going to know exactly what to expect and precisely how it's going to unfold. And you argue that consent is certainly important, but that there's a problem with this popular belief that just because sex is consensual, that it's necessarily going to be good. So tell us a little bit about that. Why isn't consent enough when it comes to having good sex? Sure. I mean, I think... One of the issues is that you can acquire consent and the sex can be terrible. Consent isn't a guarantee of anything. And in a way, that's fine, right? Because I think that consent is a legal notion. You know, its history lies in the history of thinking about the exchange of contracts, of, um, you know, individuals with sort of equal power agreeing to exchange a service. <laughs> and, you know, there are contexts in which contracts and that kind of transactional exchange is really important in sex. It's partly what can keep people safe, you know, in situations that entail greater risk, whether that's specific sexual practices or whether it's sex work or, you know, if you're working on a porn set or something, you know, so so it isn't that the kind of um, contractual model has no place in sex at all. It often does. For me, the problem is that we have turned what is a legal notion into a kind of overarching ethical rubric. And it's one that has come to be associated with, you know, every good aim in sex has to be related to consent. But the truth is getting consent and then, you know, developing these specific kind of iterations of consent, you know, affirmative consent, enthusiastic consent, unfortunately does not guarantee that someone won't abuse the acquisition of that consent. You know, if somebody wants to be abusive sexually, they can do so under the rubric of having got consent. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't rule anything out. You know, after writing the book, I was thinking to myself a lot, you know, doing interviews about it and stuff about how in a way I sort of want to deflate <laughs> the investment that we have poured into consent because it is really crucial. It's it's just the bottom line. You should only have sex with people that you know want to have sex with you. It's depressing that we're still having to talk about it because in a sense it's so obvious, but of course it's not obvious. But there is so much more that we can speak about in relation to sex and that we have to speak about that just isn't adequately captured by the notion of consent. So unequal relationships of power, for instance, you know, 
the conditions in which you ask for consent and get consent can be circumstances in which somebody just doesn't feel they have a choice. And there are so many people the world over for whom that is the case, you know, whether it's somebody who is agreeing to sex so that they're not deported or that their sex work isn't reported to the police or so that they can keep a roof above their head or, you know, there, there is so much inequality of power in the world that people bargain with sex. Of course, that's a sort of sad inevitability of unequal material conditions. So I think one of the problems with the emphasis on consent is that it imagines that we can just straightforwardly know what we want and then say what we want to the other person And hopefully that other person will respect those desires and then everything will sort of fall out beautifully, you know, as a result of that. But first of all, sex that is consensual can be depressing, it can be demeaning, it can be violent, it can be all kinds of things. You know, it's no guarantor of anything. But also one of the problems is that I think the emphasis on consent really operates in our minds culturally as a form of insurance. So really, it's a way of managing risk. And of course, we have to manage risk because sex is full of risks. And actually, we can't ever fully get rid of those risks. But the emphasis on consent, especially as I was seeing it happen in the wake of Me Too, seemed often really addressed to women or the kind of you know more vulnerable party in the transaction. And it's a form of I think, of placing the burden of risk management on the weaker person and saying, you have to know what you want and say what you want in order to ensure that you know, nothing goes wrong and there won't, you, know, you won't end up in court. First of all, that places a disproportionate burden on women or you know, the person who is the, the most vulnerable in that situation. But second of all, it's not a realizable condition because One of the really inconvenient things about sexuality (laughs) is that we don't always know what we want. It's very troubling to think about that. But I think that we have to think about that and take that far more seriously because at the moment, the attachment to consent really relies on an assumption that we can know what we want and that we can express what we want, which is its own sort of naivety because, of course, there are lots of ways in which expressing what you want ends up, you know, bringing all kinds of harm to you. So I think part of what I wanted to do in the book was to say, you know, on the one hand, consent is vital and it absolutely must still be an ongoing thing that we talk about. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that we have unconscious sexual desires. Sometimes we don't know what we want. We will change our minds all the time. Sometimes people want things that are not good for them. (laughs) You know, like sexuality is not regulatable in quite the way that I think some of the consent discourse would like. And I'm very sympathetic to that because I know where that comes from. It comes from a real despair and fear about the risks of sexual violence. But I think we have to start from a conversation which which acknowledges that there is so much more going on in sex than consent, and we need a different sort of vocabulary to really address that. Yeah, I love that answer. And you said so many important things and kind of preempted my next question, which was going to be about that point regarding, do we actually know what we want when it comes to sex? Because popular sex advice, including advice I've given myself sometimes, is that when people approach sex, 
it's important for them to communicate about what it is that they want or desire. But as we've been talking about, people don't always know their wants and desires, and sometimes they don't know until they try certain things. And then there's also that additional compounding factor of, you know, if you express your wants and desires, your partner might judge or shame you, or they might be held against you in some way in the future. So we're really kind of in a bind, right? Because we're told to express all of our desires, but we might not be able to map them out ahead of time. And even if we do and we communicate about them, there's that risk. So I think that raises the question of, you know, how do we navigate this? And one of the things that you talk about a little bit in your book is the idea of sort of embracing some degree of uncertainty when it comes to sex. And that's also been part of the sex advice that I've given as well, is that sometimes we have to step outside of our comfort zone a little bit and go into sex not knowing exactly what is going to happen and have it all pre-planned and choreographed like it is in a Hollywood sex scene, right? Sometimes we have to embrace the fact that there might be some uncertainty. We might try something new that might be something we don't like, but it could be something that we really do like. So can you talk a little bit about kind of that role of embracing a little bit of uncertainty when it comes to sex and how that might be one of the keys to getting more of what we want and having better sex? Yeah, I think it's one of the trickiest issues really, because in an ideal world, one could just approach sex with that kind of openness and that exploratory, curious, excited, you know, uncertainty. In reality, it's really hard for people to do that because that uncertainty or that sort of openness can so often get used against you. And so ideally, you're in a sexual dynamic in which you feel safe enough to explore you, know, you feel safe enough to try something, knowing that you can say to the other person, actually, that's as far as I want to go, or I'm not, you know, I've changed my mind, or I feel differently, can we stop? And know that that other person will say, of course, that's fine. And I think the sad truth is that so few people feel that, that so few people feel that their sexual partners are going to be able to respect that sort of, you know, minute by minute kind of negotiation of, of discovery because you know you you just do not know what is going to happen next in sex even if it's the very same thing that you did with the very same person yesterday you know your feelings will be different you're you're a different person every time you have sex you're in a different state that's the kind of tension for me you know i i really wish that we lived in a world where everybody felt able to approach sex without this kind of armor that we're encouraged to wear for very good reason because sexual violence and sexual intimidation and coerciveness are so rife. So of course it makes sense for us to say to people, listen, you know, think ahead about what you want, you know, be prepared, figure out what you like sexually. You know, there's so much advice, especially to women about kind of masturbation and learning your own desires and what you enjoy. And in in one sense it makes perfect sense to me, you know, especially to girls, to young women who are, you know, discovering sexuality. On the other hand, it almost seems irrelevant to me because it's so different <laughs> from having sex with a person who's a person that you have all kinds of feelings about and you're in a situation where you might, I don't know, you might be desperately wanting to lose your virginity. You might not particularly like the person or you might be obsessed with them and you might, I mean, there's just so much that is going on in a sexual encounter with another person. And there is a real sense 
to this discourse of safety that encourages people to agree things in advance and, and all of that. The problem is also that, you know, we take for granted the fact that people are not necessarily well disposed to one another's sort of personhood in sex, you know, that, that it can be very difficult for people to have that sort of negotiation in a sexual encounter, partly because everyone feels vulnerable, I think, in that situation, regardless of gender, regardless of experience. And whether they know they feel vulnerable or not, they're feeling vulnerable. <laughs> and vulnerability often masquerades itself in assertiveness and pushiness. I mean, I think especially in kind of traditional heterosexual masculinity. So you have to be so careful when talking about this stuff, because I do feel like for me, there is a kind of utopian world in which risk-taking is you know, pretty much mostly generative and exciting and productive. And, and you you encounter something and you you overcome some limit and, you know, all those kind of oceanic feelings and, you know, things that queer theorists have written so well about, like Leo Bassani, who I quote in the book, you know, the, the sort of existential aspects of sex can feel possible because I do think that sex, it's so far from being just about reproduction. It's also very far from being about the pure bodily need for sex. It's its such a psychological and kind of cultural experience. You know, I think people are trying to resolve all kinds of things in their sexual encounters, and it can be a really profound realm of sort of self-realization. But it's so rare that those conditions are possible. And I suppose when I think about that, you know, you were talking earlier on about like the different ways to approach sexuality in terms of the different disciplines and studies. For me, what's most important is like whatever way you're approaching the study of sexuality and the education around sexuality, it's to have in mind the aim that more people can feel more safe so that they can take more risks and they can, you know, expand and sort of feel, feel excitement but it is very rare. And so that, that's why I think it's so important to think about, you know, the material conditions of sex and to think about the norms of gender that perpetuate, a, you know, a very kind of acquisitive approach to sex. You know, I think when young men are growing up and the way they are taught to sort of become men in relation to women, that is really about an indifference to female pleasure and to female autonomy. It's so profoundly harmful and it means that it's so difficult for young girls and for women to experience the kind of expansive risks and pleasures of sex. But I also think it means that there is a lot that young men are not being allowed to experience either, which is that more curious and exploratory approach to perhaps their own desires. Because we all act as if we know what men want from sex and that men themselves know. And I, I don't buy that. I think sex is just as puzzling for men as it is for women. And if we could open up those restrictive norms more and more, I hope that the benefits would accrue to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I love everything that you said and totally agree that, you know, regardless of gender and sexuality, I think most of us don't know what we want when it comes to sex. And we need to have that degree of curiosity or 
those explorative experiences in order to figure out our desires. So when it comes to that uncertainty and sex piece, you know, you talked about the role and importance of safety, which I totally agree is is important in this. Now, certainly there are some people for whom that sense of safety isn't as important, people who are high on what we call sensation-seeking tendencies, and they just want the thrill and the risk of it. And there are some people across genders and sexualities who are just really high on sensation seeking. They don't necessarily need that sense of safety because they kind of want to venture into the unknown all the time. But for most of us, we kind of need that sense of safety to explore. And there are only some relationships and some relationship contexts that offer that safety. And because increasingly a lot of the sex that people are having is happening in casual contexts where you don't necessarily have that same level of safety, that can make it harder to explore some of these risks because you don't know exactly where they're going to go when you don't have that deep, intimate knowledge of your partner and so forth. So yeah, the idea of embracing uncertainty can be a little bit different when it comes to casual sex versus sex in the context of a committed relationship where you feel really safe and secure with your partner. But all of this ultimately has me thinking about the title of your book again, you know, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again. What does it actually mean to have good sex, right? So in the field of sex therapy, there are a lot of different definitions floating around when it comes to what good sex means. You know, some people argue for what they call the good enough sex model, which basically means sex doesn't always have to be amazing and mind-blowing. It just has to be good enough. But in talking about all of this and in your writings and all of the work that you've done on the subject, how would you define good sex? What does good sex actually mean? It's such a good question. It's such a difficult one to answer. I mean, I think, you know, in part for the reasons that you would, you just outlined that different people need different things from sex and they, and they want different things and they can tolerate different things and they, they go after different things. So, you know, everyone is so individual that it's really hard to generalize. One of my instincts in answering that question is that kind of good enough answer. You know, sex is it's just one of the things that we do. <laughs> and sometimes it will be great and sometimes it will be a bit crap. I mean, hopefully it's not terrible often at all. You know, I would like people to not have terrible experiences of sex, you know, pain, discomfort, feeling used or, you know, degraded in some way. But even saying that is very tricky because, of course, lots of people enjoy exactly those feelings. And I think some of those feelings are part of sex. You know, it's so tricky when you when you talk about safety, because sometimes when people ask me this question, I say, you know, some kind of sense of background safety such that you can explore, you know, such that you can try things out and feel just the kind of right, you know, combination of sort of intimacy and, and distance that that is exciting. But the truth is that I do think sex is a realm where, it's so eloquent, you know, how, how people have sex is so profoundly tied to their, their history, their biography, how they were raised as children, as infants. You know, I really think it's sort of, it's so enmeshed with who we are. And so people accomplish various aims through sex. And so from one person to ne the next, that can be, you know, it can be feeling really loved and held and embraced. For other people, it can be feeling humiliated. It can be feeling in danger. I mean, there are as many sexualities as there are people on the planet. 
So it's just, you know, in a way, I'm not answering your question because I just think it is so difficult to answer. But I do think that if we could reach a situation where more and more people were able to explore the rich weirdness of sexuality out of their own autonomous choosing, you know, and as far as any of us can be autonomous in this life, if we can maximally enable that, you know, such that somebody isn't doing something under any form of coercion, they're not doing anything because they, it's the only way they can feed their children, or it's the only way they can stay in their job or, you know, whatever. If you try and like eradicate the conditions that make people have sex out of that sort of, you know, necessity, out of a kind of precarity, that would go a long way. I don't think it would mean that everybody would have the best sex of their lives, but it would mean they would stand more of a chance of getting what they want from sex. And when I say what they want, you know, I mean what will make them fulfilled in a way that it does not include harm to another person. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. It is a tough question to answer. You know, what does it mean to have good sex? As we were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, yes, it is really important that we help people to try and have better sex. But I feel like a lot of the contemporary discourse that you read promotes that sex should always be good and it should never be bad, which kind of seems like this impossibly high bar to set. Like we're attaching all of these expectations to sex. You know, you mentioned that sex is just one of many things that we do in our life. But for a lot of people, they really put sex on this pedestal, elevate it to this really high level of importance and seem to be expecting perfection from it every time. But I think realistically, we have to accept the fact that if we're going to be sexually active, then our experiences are going to be variable. Our bodies aren't always going to do what we want them to do. We might try new things and they don't go the way that we planned or expected them to go. So I think, yes, there's a lot we can do to reduce bad sex that is otherwise consensual, but I don't think we can guarantee that sex is always going to be good. And sometimes we need to have some of those not so great experiences to know what we really do and don't want and to guide our future sex life. So I know you kind of already answered this in a way, but just curious for your take on this, you know, does sex always have to be good? Is that a realistic goal? You know, how much bad sex is tolerable? I, I don't know. It's just something I was thinking about as you were speaking. You know, sex is so entangled with everything else in our lives and in ourselves that I think, you know, so many people have the experience of, you know, some phases of their life, they feel very sexually alive and others much less so, or sometimes sex is really enjoyable and sometimes it's just too anxiety provoking or, or you know, it just feels irrelevant or it's so enmeshed with stress and your life circumstances, your relationship with the person you're having sex with, or, you know, much kind of harder to fathom stuff to do, you know, with deep sort of psychological aspects of our lives. So I think that probably most people are very familiar with the idea that, you know, sex is, it's rarely the kind of fantasy that we hope for and that it gets represented to us so much in film and TV. And I think that's fine. You know, I think in a way, part of what I think is useful is sort of like slightly disinvesting in sex as the realm where everything is kind of going to be really wonderful. And of course, you know, it also gets so entangled with a kind of performance anxiety and, and sort of it becomes another form of work. You know, you have to work hard to have the right body to not feel self-conscious during sex and, you know, 
sex is also like this thing that's supposed to be really good for our health. You know, it's like it becomes another piece of work, like in in our already very overcrowded lives. And I think slightly lowering the kind of um, slightly hyperventilating excitement and, and anxiety about sex can often end up in better sex because people often have better sex when they're less anxious, even though for some people anxiety, I think, is a real motor for sex actually because sex relaxes you so there's you know you get an investment in in sex when you you know when when you're more agitated maybe but because sex is it's such a lightning rod for everything and then especially because in popular culture you know the expectations are sort of so high it's sort of bound to fail in a way and I do sometimes think that perhaps you know, this affects different people differently and it affects men and women in different ways, I think. And But I do sometimes think that, like, the importance of sex for heterosexual men in terms of sort of a definition of their masculinity is painful and must be quite a burden. And I think some of that burden, because it gets entangled with humiliation, and, you know, if you fail sexually as a man, like, if you can't, ejaculate or you can't hold an erection or you can't you know sleep with loads of beautiful women or whatever that sense of humiliation always being just just around the corner I think that's actually um often the motive for violence towards women I think that men you know they take out that humiliated relationship to themselves in relation to those norms on women now, women become the scapegoat and so you know there is part of me that wants to kind of say it's fine for us all to be failing at sex or feeling vulnerable and hapless. And if you can normalize more of those feelings, maybe the stakes are a bit lower. And if the stakes are lower, maybe there's less violence. And also maybe people can experience more pleasure and more joy. Yeah. It has me thinking about a line from your book. I don't recall it exactly, but it's something along the lines about how if we can make sex less important to some degree, then it can become all the more important to us in terms of the way it meets our needs. I know I'm bastardizing the line, but you know it's something along those lines about this really high level of importance that we place on sex. And I think that can be problematic for everyone, regardless of gender and sexuality, because when sex becomes so important, then when you have a bad experience or you experience rejection, it becomes this very self-defining thing that can lead people to either feel really badly about themselves or in some cases to enact violence or aggression against their partners. And so maybe sex is too important and maybe it needs to be less important to that sense of self in order for us to have more and better sexual experiences. So it's a very thought-provoking idea and one that I think a lot of people haven't really grappled with yet, but I appreciate you bringing it up. Now, you talk a lot about the role of vulnerability in sex, and you have a whole chapter on this in your book. And when all the partners involved are vulnerable, that can increase the odds of good sex happening. But being vulnerable is something that is terrifying to a lot of people. And you also say that being vulnerable is kind of a privileged position in a lot of ways. You know, it favors people who can clearly say yes and no. It favors people who don't have a history of sexual trauma. And I bring this point up because a lot of popular sex advice, you know, we've been talking about a lot of what the advice is out there, 
often comes down to be vulnerable, but that isn't something that everybody can do easily. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you view this issue of vulnerability in sex? Yeah, I find it really interesting. And one of the things that's really useful to acknowledge is that, you know, we're all vulnerable in sex. You know, you're there's something you want, you know, you want an experience, you want to experience, you know, some kind of pleasure with someone else. You presumably want it with them. You know, you're naked, literally, and in other ways too, you know, you're exposed. And I think that, you know, sort of statistically speaking, women are, you know, disproportionately vulnerable to sexual violence. You know, we, we know that's just a fact. And so saying to people, you know, be vulnerable, it can risk sounding kind of deaf to that already inherent vulnerability, you know, the fact that, that you're taking a risk every time you have sex with someone. And I think that applies actually to everyone too. You know, I, I, I always sort of, on the one hand, want to emphasize, you know, the disproportionate rates of sexual violence that women experience, but also to say, like, I don't want to buy into this idea that women are inherently vulnerable and and men are fine because I actually think men are incredibly vulnerable in sex, partly because, you know, of what we've been talking about, this like the importance of sex means that they're vulnerable to rejection or they're vulnerable to feeling humiliated if a partner says, oh, I, you know, I don't want to carry on or whatever it is. So part of what I try to do in that chapter, I think at one point I say something about like wanting to invite men to vulnerability, you know, in a sort of welcoming way, not not as a way to humiliate anyone, but just to acknowledge that everyone who is, you know, decides to have sex with somebody is necessarily vulnerable because there's something they want and they risk not getting it. And they risk not getting it in this, you know, hyper kind of um, amped up sphere that sexuality is when they feel they're most exposed. The problem is that, you know, especially with some of this, I mean, I think you're totally right that some of the advice we give people is, you know, be vulnerable, be open, all of that. I also think that some of the advice that that we give in terms of consent is, is this kind of quite hardening discourse of like, you know, you've got to know yourself and be confident and be clear and, you know, assert your boundaries and I find it really moving when I was reading um, Chanel Miller's memoir. Chanel Miller was the young woman who, is it Brock Turner? I think that's his name. I hope I'm not confusing different cases, but the young man who raped her. You know, it's such a harrowing case. And she wrote such a beautiful memoir about this. And she talks about the effects of sexual violence and how it makes you harden yourself so that you can't be penetrated And of course, when we use the word penetration, you know, it's partly a physical thing that we're talking about, but it's also that sense of sort of being penetratable, you know, being open to something, being like letting your boundaries relax. It's about allowing yourself to be affected by somebody and and feeling that you can take that risk to see what it's like to be penetrated in, you know, literal and kind of metaphorical senses. Her book is really extraordinary and she's so eloquent on the way that violence kind of robs you of your ability to be vulnerable and to be open. And, you know, she writes so movingly about her own kind of attempt to kind of like rehabilitate her openness and her vulnerability so that she can experience pleasure. And this is the bind, I think, that that actually everyone is in, which is that 
we have to sort of harden our boundaries in order to protect ourselves from the risks that are out there. But in so doing, we also relinquish some of the potential for real beauty and joy. And so I'm interested in thinking about vulnerability as one of the ways in which we could try to sort of start or, or restart that conversation about consent and sex and power, which is to sort of you know, acknowledge that there's there's vulnerability because of violence and the risk of violence, but there's also something really powerful and beautiful about the vulnerability that we all kind of carry with us. You know, we're vulnerable to so many things in life. We're vulnerable to injury and illness and grief, you know, I mean, so much. And if we could sort of collectively acknowledge that, I hope that there's, you know, more scope then for people on the one hand to treat each other with a bit more care and on the other hand for people to kind of experience the more extreme states of sort of joy that that acknowledgement of vulnerability can facilitate in the right conditions but of course the right conditions are very hard to come by so true you've given us so much to think about Catherine you know from the maybe overly simplified sex advice that is often out there that gets repeated time and again. Maybe it needs to be a a bit more nuanced to reflect the fact that, you know, these contexts, these circumstances that are so important to good sex are highly variable, not always easily attainable. And also, you know, different ways of thinking about things like sexual consent. And, you know, I'm glad that we've been talking and having more conversations about consent in recent years, but I think there's still a lot that we have to grapple with in terms of figuring out, you know, how do we negotiate and navigate this in a way that's going to help everyone have the kind of sex that they want to have. And I'll just mention one other thing that I was thinking about as you were speaking and you were talking about the role of safety and security and importance for some people in relationships. This has me thinking back to something we've discussed previously on the show where there's sort of this sweet spot when it comes to feelings of safety and security. Because if you go too far in that direction, if you're too safe, then there's no risk. There's no uncertainty left anymore. And for some people, that's the thing that kind of kills or destroys passion for them, right? And so there's kind of that optimal blend we often need to have of, you know, having some degree of trust and safety and security, but being close, but not too close to the point where you can't have that passion. So I think it's just part of this very tricky domain we have to navigate when it comes to sex and relationships. And it goes back to what Eli Finkel talked about on the show several episodes ago, where, you know, the purpose, the function of relationships and marriages in our lives have fundamentally shifted. If you think about this through the lens of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they've gone from just having to meet those very basic needs for survival to now we're looking at sex and relationships as a way of achieving self-actualization. And so we're putting so much expectation and emphasis on all of this, it just makes it more complicated to navigate. So lots of stuff to think about here. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Catherine. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your books? Sure. So um, I hope they can find my book in all good bookshops. It was published by Verso in the US and the UK, and they sell it on their website. They've got a very good website. So yeah, they can go to Verso. And I'm 
a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. And that's where you can find sort of most info about me. So it's Queen Mary University of London website will lead you there. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Hold up. 